BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Thanks for downloading this episode of In Our Time. There's a reading list to go with it on our website and you can get news about our programmes if you follow us on Twitter at BBC In Our Time. I hope you enjoyed the programmes. Hello. In 54 AD, Nero became the ruler of the Roman Empire, aged 16. He held power until he was 30, when the Senate declared him a public enemy and called for his death. It was claimed that Nero murdered his mother, his brother and his wives, set fire to Rome, singing as it burned, and used Christians as human torches. He squandered fortunes on a palace, he married his eunuchs, Sporus and Pythagoras, and he called himself an artist. For early Christians he became the Antichrist, and ever since he's been a byword for depravity in books and films. Yet during his lifetime he was surprisingly popular across the empire. With me to discuss the life and reputation of Nero are Matthew Nichols, fellow and senior tutor at St John's College, University of Oxford, Shushma Malik, lecturer in classics at the University of Roehampton, and Maria White, professor of Latin at University College London. Maria, how stable was Rome in Nero's childhood? Well, we're talking about the first century of the, the Christian era, the 40s AD, and from uh, that point, the Roman Empire is vast. It extends uh, from the west in Spain, up north into Britain, across the Rhine and the Danube, over around Greece, down to Syria, and confronting the Parthian Empire. But the control of that empire was highly volatile. It was run by an autocrat in collaboration with the Senate, um, Augustus, when he set up the system, called his role that of the princeps, which means the first among equals. And you can imagine that very much in quotation marks. And from the point of view of Nero as a child, he would have seen that the issue of the succession between those leaders was extremely disturbing and had a huge effect on him because the the role which we would now call that of an emperor, uh, the role in principle died with each emperor and after one died, another one had to be selected. So Augustus, who set up the system, wanted uh, preferably to keep those um, those roles within the, his family, the Julio-Claudians. And that meant power play and intrigues within that family. It meant marriages and adoptions, but it also meant divorces, banishments, um, exile and death. Right, so for Nero... Uh, under the second uh, emperor, Tiberius, his grandmother was put in prison. His uncles um, were there with them, with her and died. Under the third uh, emperor, um, Caligula, his mother was sent into exile for a while. He, was ha- he had to be brought up in Rome without his inheritance with a paternal aunt. Um, under uh, Claudius, his mother returned and she uh, gradually managed to uh, enter into that imperial family by marrying Claudius and by um, getting her son to be entitled Claudius's son and successor. How did Nero come to power? Well, you could say, um, first of all, mushrooms and second of all, uh, his mother. Uh, we'll, mushrooms. Have with, we'll have to get the mushrooms out of the way first. Yes, we'll get the mushrooms out of the way because the story goes in the sources that Claudius um, died after eating a plate of mushrooms and that he a had poison been poisoned mushrooms. by his wife, Agrippina, Nero's mother. Now, um, 
it's perfectly possible that uh, Claudius was uh, just eating poisonous mushrooms. Uh, he was known to be a glutton. He suffered a lot from stomach aches. It becomes uh, a regular uh, insult, uh, a critique of the imperial family to say that an imperial woman poisoned one of the members because it's one of the unofficial ways that she can gain uh, power in the family. Um, and so it is possible that Agrippina poisoned her husband, but how would we ever know that? I think the interesting thing about it is this sense that um, the stories uh, are uh, exposing to us the way in which she was so involved in organising Nero's rise to power. So she got him to power, really? Yes, through he... marrying her uncle, uh, Claudius, through um, pushing for Nero, her son, to become his heir, despite the fact that Claudius already had a son, and then for um, Claudius to arrange the marriage of Nero to his daughter. So by now, Nero was completely entrenched in the family and was able to... Um, there was no doubt that he should succeed when um, Claudius died prematurely. So without being, without being silly, there was very aggressive and uh, fatal family politics going on all the time. And this is you've given us just a taste of it because it gets worse, doesn't it? It but, gets worse and there's yeah, a lot yeah. of it. Shusma <laughs> Malik... Um, how did Nero's early days, how did it compare to the previous rule by Claudius? So Nero started off um, to some extent by showing that he was going to be more promising than Claudius had been in his uh, later years. Um, Claudius also ruled for um, quite a long time, uh, 41 to 54, so he had a number of years in uh, as emperor as well. Um, but he, uh, towards particularly towards the end of his reign, was seen as relying a lot on his wives, so uh, the, the uh, most recent one of those was Nero's mother, uh, but also his freedmen, so these are members wives of... Are. Yes, wives. Um, so before Agrippina, uh, there was another very notorious woman in our literature named Messalina, um, who is said to have uh, run rings uh, to some extent around Claudius, uh, including having very uh, public affairs with um, a, well, a senator in particular, but also committing um, a number of sexual acts with uh, people far beneath her. So she was quite a notorious woman in her own right, but someone that Claudius was unduly influenced by, according to our sources. So we've had Claudius there. Nero comes up. He's a boy. 17 uh, when he gets in, in the saddle, as it were, as the emperor. How does he compare with Claudius? What's what's good about him that was bad about Claudius or vice versa? What's going on? Nero has some good people around him. Seneca and a Praetorian prefect named Burrus in particular. So Seneca, we know, is a, a philosopher, a letter writer, a moral essayist. Um, and he was also Nero's speechwriter in those early years. So what did he do? Nero, in those first few years, reassured the Senate that he was going to rule in a proper way, that he was going to... Because um, Claudius had gone away from the Senate and employed precisely. three men, his wives, and hangers-on of all sorts. So he brought yes. the Senate back into play. Yes, yes that's one the, thing. And? Um, uh, he brought the Senate back into play, and he also um, reassured the Praetorian Guard, so the army in Rome, that he was going to pay them properly and give them uh, the, their due respect through... Uh, through through wealth um, and he also left to some extent um, the Senate to run things in Rome for those first few years um, so he was able to um, 
uh, demonstrate to them that he wasn't going to, for example, reinstate the treason trials where senators uh, would implicate each other and and, uh, and be uh, put on trial and possibly exile. So he was making sure that the Senate in particular knew that he was going to be um, a good emperor for them. And he did things for the people, didn't he? He set up new entertainments, uh, chariot racing uh, and games, of business sorts, and he built a massive market. So the people, yes. as it were, in those few years, four or five years, well, they're precisely there or near the beginning of his, let's call it reign, liked him, as well as the senators feeling placated and on side. Yes, precisely. So in 59 AD, for example, he um, threw very spectacular games called the Juvenalia, which uh, were to mark apparently the first shaving of his beard. Um, so he uh, threw spectacular games in the Greek style with lots of entertainment, circus races and, and events um, that, that the people loved. So he started off very well. That's what we're talking about, generally speaking. Um, it's even being thought of later as a rather a golden age, a golden time. Would you agree with that, Matthew? Matthew Nichols. There were sources a bit later on who told us that it was said Trajan, for example, whom posterity I think regards as the best Roman emperor, um, is supposed to have said that Nero surpassed everybody for a quinquennium, a period of five years. And there's a lot lot to be said about that for all the reasons that Shushma's given us. He he actually won and, in fact, retained throughout his life quite a lot of popular acclaim, quite a lot of popular um, appeal to the lower orders at Rome. He never quite lost that. Uh, he took measures that were seen in retrospect as positive. I think we have to say also, though, that all of our sources love the idea of decline from early promise. And I think it's not just our, our Latin writers that do that. I think we can think in modern terms of presidents and prime ministers who start off with the honeymoon period. We don't period. like to think in modern terms. We'll okay. stick to what we've got. is difficult enough. Well, uh, it, it's, it's a temptation to see rule as early promise snuffed out and leading on to decline. And I think mm. our, our sources tend to do that. Uh, so they'd like to build up the beginning in order to run down the end a little bit, perhaps. So what were the big challenges? He did, let's say, let's give him those five years, except Britannicus was murdered, yes. uh, the, 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 the proper son of, of Claudius, who could be seen as his rival, just a few years younger. Mm-hmm. And one or two other things were beginning to fester and go on that were mm-hmm. on, uh, unseemly, to put it mildly. Uh, what larger challenges were there to the emperor of Rome at that time? Uh, Nero came to power with a very full intray, um, and there were circumstances particular to his own times that were a challenge. So he was the fifth, and as it turned out, the last of the Julia-Claudian emperors. So he inherited a system that we, we've heard about from Maria and Shushma that in some ways is a stable system for transmitting powers, but in other ways has these huge tensions around the succession, around court dynamics and family politics. He had a lot of constituencies he had to appeal to implicate simultaneously. So the, the senatorial aristocracy, who maybe didn't want him there, or thought they could do a better job, um, from them, the provincial governors with their dangerous armies, who are his eventual undoing, the common citizenry of Rome with their, their appetite for games and for spectacle that we've heard about, the provincial citizens. Um, he had to balance all of these interests out. But those whom he fed in the beginning ate him in the end, didn't they? Yes. Um, it, people have, have said in other contexts it's like holding a wolf by the ears. It, it's very difficult to do forever. Uh, and his appeal to the commons in the end undid him with the aristocracy. But by and large, to put this in context, the empire that he inherited wasn't very different from the empire he left. There'd been the Baudica in Britain, easily put down, and riot in Judea, one or two other things. But there wasn't any disturbance. It was consolidation, not expansion, but it wasn't decline as an empire. Uh, Yes, that's right. But that is a challenge, because the ideology and the logic of the empire early on was founded on, on endless expansion, imperium sine fine, and there's no longer 
conquest is no longer booty pouring in to enrich the coffers at Rome. So the consolidation is a challenge of its own sort. So this is a big strain. Where's the money coming from now? Yes, and he has buffer states on his eastern frontier that he has to deal with as well, um, the Parthia that we we talked about briefly. Is he any good at dealing with the lack of money? No. Um, Well, he takes proactive steps that later come back and bite him, I would say. I, I think a lot of the criticism after the fire about the palace is because of misguided reconstruction and this is the great fire of Rome, after which he built this enormous, yes. enormous palace on two hills, and yes. so it never finished, but, and, and so on. And he also tried to rebuild Rome, and the, the economic damage of that fire would have been enormous. We can tell, for example, that the coinage gets debased. There are real economic stresses in the system, and in trying to tackle those with limited means at his disposal, um, he incurred a lot of unpopularity. But by and large, the ship, the ship of the empire was, was reasonably steady. And at the, outer, the further he went away from Rome, the more he was liked, as far as one can make out. And people, I suppose, it's just those people in Rome behaving as they always did. Let them get on with it. Yeah, is, this, is this too flip a, su- a summary? Well, if you went east from Rome, people tended to like him. He was Phil Hellion. He liked the Greeks and their, their games and their, their culture and their myths. Um, the Romans in the north didn't like him, the Boudican revolt. But generally, yes, uh, the, the, the provincials he did appeal to. Maria, can we, Maria, why can we talk about his mother, Agrippina the Younger, um, who got him there, who supported him there, who gave him good advice there, and whom he had killed? Yes, I think nowadays there's a tendency or a, a desire to psychoanalyse uh, this particular episode in 59 when uh, he kills, he has his um, mother killed. And what we look at is a, a psychopath who finally needs to get rid of his domineering mother, supposed to have been so domineering that she even offered um, herself uh, for sex with her son. Is there any the proof end. of that incest? No. <laughs> but it was, 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 was it soundly rumoured or...? Well, the, um, the, I think it just fits neatly as the sort of climactic moment of the difficulties in, in the relationship. And the story goes that he hypocritically invited her uh, to a party by the sea and then even more hypocritically said a, a fond goodbye to her when she sailed back to Rome on a ship that had been designed to fall apart in order to kill her. And that when she survived, he then had to publicly accuse her of um, treason so that he could then arrange for an executioner to stab her to death. And she was said to have pointed at her belly and say, stab me there where the monster had been nurtured. So stab me in the womb. Yes. And so that is the story of the, of the, you know, of, of the birth of a monster who, who kills the, the home that he was made in, if you like. Um, but clearly, there was a political dimension to the the death of his mother, and it may well be that he had been advised by others and by her political enemies uh, to to have her killed. At this why point. was she dangerous for him? And why did he think she was dangerous for him? Well, it's there's there's plenty of really clear evidence that she had the most extraordinary political role at the beginning of his reign, not just in getting him there, but even after the very beginning of his power. So that we see the most extraordinary coins where she is presented as facing him, mother and son, celebrating the beginning of his reign. Nothing like that had ever been done before. We're told that the the, the watchword that he used uh, with the Praetorian Guard when he first became emperor was Optima Mater, the best of mothers. And so you get a sense that she did have what was then a hugely transgressive ambition to exercise political power in Rome in ways that were um, unofficial. 
So we then sense that uh, Nero may well have been happy to let others rule on his behalf, first his mother, then his other advisers. But there were respects in which he wanted, as he was getting older, control over himself. And that meant when he fell in love with a freed woman, Acte, he wanted to have a relationship with her. When he later fell in love with a, a noble Roman Roman Poppea, he wanted to have that relationship and get rid of his wife, whereas Agrippina would have seen that as unacceptable. Sorry, Sorry. Agrippina would have seen that as as, um, destroying the dynasty that she was trying to establish. Well, while we're down among the women, there was Octavia, his first wife, who was very well connected, whom he caused to, as it were, caused to be murdered by assassins. Or she took her own life as assassins were approaching her. That's what it says. Yes, she was banished first. Yes. And then the, the person he wanted to get rid of her for, Poppea, went to her. And then he's supposed to have kicked her to death. What do we, do, what do we say about that? Well, I think it's very interesting that some of the, the writers who now um, are, are looking to, um, I suppose, whitewash Nero to a degree, say there were political reasons for, for getting rid of his mother. But it's nonetheless the case, or at least you know, the sources tell us, that he kicked his pregnant wife to death. And and killed therefore his unborn child. So he may not have been a psychopathic tyrant, but he was certainly a murderous wife abuser. I think we can have both of those together, <laughs> can't we? Um, Shushma, Nero was blamed um, for what he did to the Christians after the great fire in the six four in sixty four A.D. That's what we say, and he um, and he was accused of starting the fire. So can you unravel that, please? Yes. So um, in our sources, we have three main sources for uh, Nero's life that are um, historical, the the historical evidence. So um, Tacitus writing late 1st century, early 2nd century AD, um, Suetonius around the same sort of time, early 2nd century AD, and then um, Cassius Dio, who's writing uh, sort of more towards the late 2nd century, perhaps early 3rd century. Um, and in Suetonius and Cassius Dio, they are certain that Nero set the fire. This wasn't just a rumour, but he actually set fire to Rome because he had designs on redesigning the city. He wanted to build his famous golden house and he wanted uh, to, to um, reform Rome in his own way. Rome at that time was sort of almost a conglomeration of shacks, wasn't it? A little side street built of wood, yes. very shabby. Exactly. Yeah, it nods all around the table. <laughs> so that's, that's the general idea. So he wanted to get rid of it, and the artist in him wanted to, to rebuild the whole thing. Precisely. Yeah. But, but Tacitus, who um, is the source who says it was a rumour that Nero set fire to Rome, uh, that it seems ridiculous that, that he would actually have done it, um, says that, that in rebuilding it, he made Rome much, much better. So he used better materials, wider streets, so that the fire couldn't spread as easily. So one thing... Is there is it rumor that he set fire to Rome? Is that we're on? Because there's a lot of there's a lot of anecdotes, rumors. Suetonius liked a good story, breezed through, <laughs> and so on. So it's rumor that he set fire to Rome. Yeah, nobody to nobody knows if the match was lit. If Precisely. There were matches, well, I mean, Nero himself was at Antium at the time, so no matter what, he did not light the match himself. Um, but whether or not he sent uh, the guard or some representatives. But that was his merit to get other people to do the dirty work all the time didn't it really? Yes that's what uh, and as uh, Maria said with his mother and and others uh, well perhaps Poppea is the exception there Uh, but there was that that aspect to it but um, 
Tacitus, who, uh, you know, to some extent is one of our more reliable ancient sources, uh, does say these are rumours, and in order to uh, avoid the rumours, that's where the Christians come in. Why did he turn on the Christians? Tacitus says that they were a group in Rome, a small group in Rome, who were disliked generally by the mass population. So the people in Rome didn't really understand what Christian worship or Christianity as a group was um, and they, because they were superstitious according to Tacitus he calls them a pernicious superstition um, they made an easy target um, one that the people would accept and so they were good to blame yes. and he blamed them can you, tell, can you give the listeners some of the details of how he um, took revenge on these people who may or may not have any, had anything to do with the fire it's slightly it, not isn't it yeah we, I would have thought not his, his revenge was flamboyant and theatrical and spectacularly horrid as many of his deeds were and we're told that he, he crucified them um, he had wild beasts attack them he, he lit them up as flaming torches to light up his gardens in the night and he, he invited people to come and look at this as a spectacle now there's some precedent for this in arena games and the punishment of criminals it's not totally an invention of Nero's if this is what he did but Tacitus does tell us that even though, in his Tacitus's view, the Christians were an awful sect who deserved to be persecuted, nonetheless there was sympathy for them because Nero went, he overstepped the mark, he went too far with it. Yes, and he seemed to enjoy it, we're told. Yes, and he yeah. enjoyed a lot of other... I mean, he enjoyed seeing things. people burn, taking yes. people around and saying, look at that one, taking longer yes. than that one. That's yes, what, he took sort of a, a, a vicious delight in it, it seems. Yes, yes. Do we have any knowledge... Do you have any real information about what other people in Rome thought about the Christians being thus abused? At this date, this is one of the very earliest testimonies we have for persecution of Christians. Just a little bit later, we have letters from a baffled provincial governor to a later emperor saying, what shall I do with the Christians? And they have a little exchange of correspondence about you have to punish them if they really, really won't give up their faith. But this is very early in the story of Rome's interactions with the Christians. They're more used to persecuting Jews at this date. To come back to the sort of mad fringe of his behaviour, is there any evidence that he did sing while Rome burned or fiddled or sang or something? Uh, well, fiddled is probably a 17th century invention. No fiddles in ancient Rome. What he would have done if he performed was to, to play the lyre, and we know that he did do that. This is one of his great passions in life, was putting on uh, Kitharode's costume, a lyre singer's costume, and singing tales from myth. He was reasonably good at it. He took his training very seriously, so it fits with his character. Two of our sources, the two that Shushma mentioned, who said he set fire to Rome, also tell us, as a matter of absolute fact, he put on this costume and performed as Rome was in flames. Um, it does fit with his character. I think he might have quoted a bit of Homer, maybe. Other Romans did that. Scipio did that. The great Roman at the sack of Carthage quoted Homer in pity about a city in flames. So perhaps he made a, a remark that was interpreted as in, in poor taste at the time and later turned into this myth of him performing and singing rather than and taking action. But we know he did take action, as, as we were told a, bit, a minute ago. His anti-fire measures and his reconstruction measures were actually quite positive, and it's later on that the story of him setting the fire and revelling in it came to be told. Let's attack those sources again, please, Maria. Let, let's take the two main ones, Suetonius and Tacitus, the others a little bit later, <clears throat> those two very near the time, therefore very available to gossip and chat at the time and proper stories handed on and to monuments of the time, coinage and all the rest of it. You've got Suetonius and Tacitus. Now, would you distinguish between them and tell them and tell the listeners which one you rely on more? There we go. Well, I think there are just very different styles of telling accounts about Rome, and Suetonius is much more interested in sort of morality, anecdotes, um, events in the life of the emperor. It's a kind of biography, whereas Tacitus is interested more in the sort of systematic history 
of uh, the government of Rome and the consequences to the damage that was done to the original republican system by the um, efforts of the various emperors, one more depraved than the next. And these sorts of stories, I think you mentioned them right at the start, these stories of parricide, fratricide, matricide, killing of several wives, sexual depravity, spendthriftness. Um, I think the couple of things that we missed there were, particularly, for example, in this concern Tacitus, is that he did not seem, Nero did not seem so interested in government and did not seem interested in the army. Now, those are crucial ways of of having authority and exercising control in the Roman state. And instead, he was interested in theatre. Now, that is to completely behave against the way that uh, a leader of the Roman state should behave. And so those anecdotes become... Um, a way of criticising the direction of travel of Roman history, the sense that not just Nero's reign is declining, but the whole of Rome is heading for disaster because of these kinds of behaviours. And sorry, and he took a year off to go to Greece to act in plays with his, with his company, to act in these competitions. Surprisingly, he won every one of them, I'm told. He did, yes. And um, you can see that uh, I mean, the, the, some of the most interesting information about him on the, I suppose, the more pleasurable and creative uh, side is about the extent to which he turned out to be rather a good charioteer and could uh, ride ten horses at a time, which is apparently quite a difficult thing to do, that his voice was actually quite reasonable that his poetry was not too bad but of course yes he did one win every victory in Greece and and the point partly of those stories in writers like Suetonius and Tacitus is to say these are activities of an artist not the activities of an emperor when he came back from his Greek tour, he engaged in a sort of pretend triumph, so a perversion of this, this military heroic return, which is maybe the third time he'd done that. There's another one after the death of his, his mother. So this inversion of great public norms is something that he seems to revel in and later authors really detest him for. Well, we can also see uh, uh, some of the things that he did do, material things, this enormous palace built on two hills, this golden room with revolving tables and perfumes coming in from the walls and all that sort of thing as being uh, obvious, given that that things were a bit difficult uh, economically, uh, ridiculous extravagance. Well, maybe it was not a bit ridiculous extravagance, you tell me. Can, can we redeem the golden house? It, it's too big, it's too extravagant, it's it's made at the wrong time and Rome is reeling from the after-effects of fire and Nero gets too greedy for resource to complete it and that, I think, contributes to his downfall. Um, but ca- can we recover any kind of practical purpose in this? I don't think it was necessarily a palace that shut the rest of Rome out. I mean, there was some reaction at the time. There's a famous Pasquinade that Suetonius quotes about runaway fellow citizens to Vey because the, the palace is gobbling up the whole city. So there was some resentment at the time. But I think there was also perhaps an intention to make this uh, the equivalent of a rich man's country villa in the heart of the city and maybe for quite a share of Rome's population to partake in the the banquets and the sports and the kind of glens and and lakes and and pleasure grounds of it all. Uh, Maria, um, I've talked or mentioned, or you have, uh, some popular support still, particularly on the eastern side of the empire, uh, um, can you just, just say a bit more about that? He seems to be doing... Well, he is obviously doing... Well, you all seem to be really agree that he did most of the monstrous things he's accused of doing or, or asking other people to do them for him. 
no dissent. Okay, we can move on. And, <laughs> uh, and then, so, but the popular support seems to be quite steady. Am I? Is that right? Well, I think there's, there's clearly particular areas in which there is support for him, despite the fact that at his in, the end of his reign, senators are saying that with his removal, there's a return to liberty. So one key area of support is what the senatorial sources would describe the pleasure of the pleb sordida, the squalid masses, who in the course of his reign uh, gained a great deal from the entertainments that he provided. In some of those entertainments, they were supposed to have been showered with vouchers to obtain luxury gifts afterwards that included um, jewellery and horses. So he uh, provided for um, the people of Rome, but that is not something that is regarded as a positive step within the context of the sources. I think the other areas... I don't quite understand that remark. Why is it not a positive sector in the context of the sources? Well, because the sources would say this is about entertainment. It's about theatre. But why is entertainment not positive? Because it's about um, a lack of um, order and control over the rest of the state. It's about the fact that as time goes by, Nero actually finally performs himself on the stage in Rome. And this is catastrophic for the senatorial perspective, because to act on the stage is to debase yourself. It's equivalent to being a prostitute, isn't it? Being yes. an actor in those days. Yes, exactly. But but going back to your question about popular support, you can see another um, whole area, region, where he was supported was in the East. Uh, you mentioned that his, his travels in Greece, he declares that Greece has been liberated. In this case, it would seem from having to pay taxes to Rome. And there is coinage that celebrates him as a, a new sun shining on the Greeks. And the extent to which you can see there there is some support for him, particularly in the um, in in parts of Rome and in the East, is that after he dies, flowers are still placed on his grave. There are cult statues carried around of him, and particularly, I think, what interests people is the fact that a number of false Neros emerge in the East, who uh, are, are are described as you know coming back, garnering support which suggests that his name was something that could be used to attract people to you. Was it in Greece that he married his two eunuchs, uh, Sporus and Pythagoras, one as the husband, the other as the wife? Is that right? Did it happen there? Um, Well, his ceremony with Sporus was definitely uh, Greek in style, and that particular story about his the, the two stories of his marriages to his freedmen, one in which he played the husband and the other in which he played the wife, are clearly stories that... Can be can be used by the sources to demonstrate quite how appalling an emperor he was. Because if if we take the case of Sporus, for example, we're told that he comes across a young freedman who looks a lot like his um, his beloved wife Poppea that he had um, kicked killed, to death. kicked to death, and he castrates the young man and ceremoniously marries him. He then organises for the uh, the eunuch to travel round Greece with him, dressed in the clothes of an empress. Now, that story tells us that, that uh, Nero is not a proper man because he is playing at marriage. The ceremony was supposed to have included prayers for children. He's, he's completely subverting the whole need for reproduction in, in the Roman um, values of marriage. And perhaps the worst thing of all is it's also Greek, because from the Roman perspective, that is not a good thing. And it's theatre, it's all a drama, it's all dressing up, it's not the real behaviour of a proper man. It's performative and flamboyant, and whenever he's 
playing a tragic carry on on the stage, his mask is a mask of Popper. It's all very strange and seems connected to guilt and grief over his wife's death, but also performing it and reminding people about it. Shushma, um, what brought him down? I mean, is he not <laughs> said enough to bring anybody down, but was there any particular, <laughs> any particular piece of straw that broke the Senate's back? So there were a few events, I think, that that we can kind of pull together to make a few different straws. Um, The first would be 65 AD, when um, uh, so three years before his eventual downfall, but when there was a conspiracy in Rome to bring him down. This is known as the Piso Conspiracy. Um, And this wasn't a conspiracy to restore the Republic or anything like that. In fact, it's named for Piso because he was envisaged to be uh, the successor to Nero. Um, There was talk that he would marry uh, Claudius's eldest daughter, Antonia, um, to give him some legitimacy in a a Julio-Claudian context. Um, But this was a a conspiracy throughout, Tacitus tells us, all sections of society. So it did include senators, but also freedmen. There's um, a, a woman involved, at least one, he tells us about, if, if not more. Um, and they all had their different reasons for so wanting did it fail? Nero. Um, so one of the um, conspirators uh, was uh, given away by uh, his freedman. So a freedman um, gave, uh, who would have been working in his house, um, heard about the conspiracy and told Nero's Praetorian Guard. And so he got away with that, as it were. Yes. Yeah, so, so I'm so, asking what nailed him. That didn't. Right. Okay. So after um, after uh, the conspiracy started to show weaknesses, I think in 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 the reign, um, as you said, he went off to Greece in '66 um, and returned in '68, and then in uh, in '68, uh, when uh, shortly uh, before he returned to Rome, there was a revolt in Gaul. So uh, uh, the person in charge of the army there vindex um was uh put his his troops uh wanted him to uh be the successor so uh the vindex revolt was the beginning of the end that was the beginning of the in what way what was the end did the senate say you this is it you have to go now and you must go into the arena and be beaten to death was that the idea um not quite so uh the the thing the thing always was is there needed to be a credible alternative I think and uh, when the downfall eventually did happen the credible alternative was the governor in Spain named Galba um, so that's when the Senate felt that they had the authority of the army behind them in order to declare Nero a public enemy um, to be a public enemy meant that he could uh, be killed in what was called the old style which meant he could be stripped naked and beaten with rods um, if he were if he were found so Nero fled Nero fled uh, Matthew can you tell us about his end was it again was that performative as well Yes, and also the accounts we have of it are almost self-consciously theatrical. I, I feel they're almost like film noir. Kind of, He wakes up in a deserted palace, he flees to a suburban villa, he has to tunnel his way in, it's dark, his, his horse is startled by a corpse in the road, there are shouts and cries in the background. It's really gripping, stagey writing. If you step back from it for just a moment and you realise he's fled with four low-ranking attendants to this deserted villa, where does the story come from, actually? How, how reliable can it be? Suetonius and I both tell it. They probably got it from a contemporary source called Cluvius Rufus, but he's lost. So a little pinch of salt. But if we enjoy, relish that story a, a bit further, 
he makes these mordant, um, stagey remarks as he's dying. This is Nero's distilled water, he says, as he drinks from a stagnant pool. Um, and famously, qualis artifex perio, what an artist I am in my death, or what an artist dies with me, or maybe I'm dying like a tradesman. Lots of different ways of, of passing that, that phrase, but it's the sort of thing, even if he didn't say it, he should have said it, I think. Um, it sums up his performative, stagey, drama-obsessed, self-dramatising approach to the last years of his reign. And he quotes Homer also, you know, he's he, literature But the actual there. death of Nero was by Nero. Uh, yes, he, he asks for help um, from his freedman and he eventually summons up the courage and runs a blade into himself and then a, a military officer turns up just as he's dying and Nero says, you're late. So there's a kind of little bit of sarcasm as he dies as well. But yes, he manages to contrive his, his own end um, in this rather ignominious way as, as the hoofbeats thunder outside. How did his reputation become so negative so soon after his death? Well, because you find that at the end of 69, uh, we're starting a completely new dynasty, a completely new approach to the the um, government of empire. And the new dynasty, the Flavians, they have nothing to do with the Julio-Claudians and every reason to present their authority, their justification for having taken over as a contrast to what has gone before. So again, you're suggesting that Nero... His name is Blacken in order to keep their their reputation white. Absolutely, yes. And that, that happens how very much, quickly how much in you agree the with literature. That? How much do you go along with that? That he was blackened. Well, I think that, you know, from what we've been discussing today, it's quite clear that he wasn't exactly a, uh, a pure uh, angel and that there are all sorts of respects in which he was a deeply disturbing, deeply disturbed figure. And therefore, they had plenty of material to work with. I think that's the best best way of putting it. Uh, Shushma, how did he become um, such a defining character for the Christians, such an antichrist in the Book of Revelations, for instance? Um, so the thing that we've uh, not mentioned so far is that during uh, Nero's reign, we also had, of course, that generation after the uh, crucifixion of Christ, which would have happened in the 30s AD. So um, St Peter and St Paul were thought to have been in Neronian Rome at some point, um, both of them dying uh, during the Neronian period. So um, the Christian stories go that Peter was crucified during that persecution after the fire. Um, Paul, because he was a Roman citizen, was beheaded perhaps a few years later um, for an unrelated reason, but for causing disturbances. Um, so that became a very powerful uh, part of uh, the Christian story, of course, uh, because these are two extremely important um, apostolic figures. Uh, but also during this period, um, it was thought in antiquity that uh, John was writing Revelation. So this period or perhaps shortly after, uh, maybe in the, the, the decades following Nero's reign. Um, so when we get to uh, the start of Christians writing extremely prolifically in a about the third century AD um, and the first um, texts that are, are commentaries on what the apostles have wrote, they say, well, when uh, John talks of the first beast in Revelation, clearly that's Nero. When St Paul talks about the man of lawlessness in his letter to the Thessalonians, clearly that's Nero. So uh, Nero then gets cast onto this idea of an antichrist figure. Recently, Matthew, there's been, recently in the last 20 or so years, there's been strong attempts to revise this general view that's been put out on this programme so far about Nero. What are the main points of it and what do you make of it? 
I think reading our sources with care, reading against the grain, as we might say, looking to, to escape from the kind of biographical prison that all of these sources want us to look at Nero through and to look instead structurally and systematically at the, the geopolitics of the Roman Empire, about dynastic politics, the economy of the Roman Empire. If we zoom out from Nero a bit we start to see that perhaps he was um, a prisoner of his times in some way, a prisoner of circumstance, and he was very, very young. I mean, he came to power in his teens. Doesn't and really excuse it. If, if the monstrosities are correct, doesn't excuse it. Of course it? not, but what it means is that all of his achievements were cut short too, and mm. uh, we can't say, we can't put much positive in the balance against the crimes and the outrages because he didn't, he didn't achieve much in the, in the years that he had. I, I don't know that we need to rehabilitate him fully. I don't know we need to claim he was a good man or a good thing for Rome but I think we can do what we've been doing in this programme and look critically and carefully at how our sources are shaping our picture of Nero at least and try and find in him some some rationale actually some some choice, some positive choice of the way he behaved and he chose a flamboyant stagey popular style of rule that later was very deeply out of fashion but at the time did have some favour, it found some some fans uh, in his lifetime and straight after his death. Two of the four successors that jockeyed for power in the year after his death styled themselves very closely after Nero, presumably trying to appeal to somebody. Maria, what do you make of the arguments in his favour or, or to mitigate the uh, damaging reputation he has, those arguments over the last 25 years? I think one just has to be careful about how one approaches them because you can find writers... Um, as I was mentioning earlier, talking about how he was no megalomaniac, he was no tyrant, but then trying systematically to diminish some of the clearly disturbing things that he did. You know, burning Christians, kicking his wife to death, these are not things that one should just wash away. So I think we need to be careful about the the kind of balancing of those of those issues and stepping back and looking at, at emperors within the broader context of what was going on in that world makes it a little bit um, perhaps a, a little fairer judgment on what uh, actually happened. And Shushma, what's your view of the of the attempt to restore or to change or to whitewash or cleanse Nero? I think when you pick out some of the things that, that Nero did, they sound horrific, and yes, to, um, they were, but they have to be understood in the context of um, the games in terms of how um, he decided to punish Christians or um, in terms of his, his golden house. There are precedents for bigger and better palaces coming up under the Julio-Claudians anyway. Um, and one of the things uh, that the emperors would have thought a lot about and emperors did afterwards as well is how to outdo your predecessor. And to some extent, some of the more flamboyant things that Nero did that we perhaps um, sometimes look at out of context do need to be understood in this context. Well, thank you all very much. Thank you, Shushma Malik, uh, Maria Wyke and Matthew Nichols. Next week, it's the anti-Catholic Gordon riots of 1780, said to be the closest Britain came to a revolution and an inspiration to the French. Well, thanks for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. So what did we miss out that you'd like to have spoken about? There's something I'd like to mention, I think, because... I think we can't really avoid Peter Ustinov, uh, oh, or at least I can't absolutely. avoid Peter Ustinov. <laughs> and this is because one of the aspects of, you know, one of the key things that has influenced our view of Nero over the years till we've started to try and revisit him is that he was turned into a kind of satanic demonic figure by um, the early church. 
that story of Nero as Antichrist was picked up in a in a hugely successful 19th century novel by the, the Polish Nobel laureate Henry Schenkiewicz. And he constructs Nero as a kind of Antichrist figure. Peter is leaving Rome. He has a visitation from Christ. On the basis of that, he turns round and goes back to Rome to protect the flock from the Antichrist. Now, for me, that, that novel has been hugely important. You can go now to the Via Appia. You can stand in front of the church built where Christ visited Peter. I'm, I'm an ex-Catholic. You know, these things are big issues. You can go to the Vatican. This is supposed to be where Peter's buried, even though there's no historical evidence for his martyrdom there. But it's a short step from that story that used to be a book given to Catholic children on their confirmation throughout the 20th century. It's a short step from that to the Hollywood Cold, Cold War blockbuster in which you find Peter Ustinov playing his uh, lyre, singing O Lambent Flame when uh, a kind of glass model version of Rome is, is being burnt. And I think that kind of dissemination of that kind of Christian version of Nero has been so strong that partly the scholarly approach now is, is a reaction to that. Mm. And they're such vivid and powerful images, aren't they? And it's it's quite hard to step back from them or, or unthink mm-hmm. them. If we're thinking about portrayals of Nero, another thing that, that we might mention <coughs> is his coin portraiture. I find that very interesting. So all his statues were, were pulled down. His memory was condemned after his death. But we do have coins with him on. And if, very broadly, the the story of Nero is, is an arc of decline from promising young prince to, to, to corrupt and dissipate a tyrant... His coin portraits also show him kind of young and angular and promising and getting fat and jowled and kind of Elvis-like as his reign declines. And it's very tempting just to read this biographically and say, well, the money was making a portrait and Nero is getting fat and dissipated, so his coin showed him fat and dissipated. But that can't be quite right. That can't be the whole story because, of course, Nero controlled his imperial image very closely. There must be some sort of Henry VIII-like appeal to solidity and, and royal splendour going on there that to us just looks misplaced, but he must have thought he was doing something positive. And that's quite a nice analogue for his whole self-presentation, I think. It just it strikes for us the wrong note. For his immediate successors it strikes the wrong note. But he thought he was doing something clever there. Quo Vardis was the first film I saw which had an interval. <laughs> Went with my mother. (laughs) (laughs) Got an ice cream in the middle as well. (laughs) And could I just say that uh, at the time that the film was originally released, it was possible to go to the department stores and buy versions of Nero shorts in eight fiery colours. (laughs) I've never found them. I really wanted to. Uh, The only thing, Pete Houston, yes, but I can't imagine him controlling ten horses from a chariot (laughs) for all these many skills. Anyway, I'm being frivolous. Let's move on. What did we we leave out? Well, Quo Vardis, um, uh, that's a... um, the Peter Eastonoff character is, is, I mean, he, it's just such a perfect representation to some extent of um, Nero for that time. But I always found it quite different from the Nero of the novel, in which um, the Polish author used the words beast frequently, Antichrist and beast frequently, um, uh, referring back to Revelation and using very close imagery to... Um, to that book um, in the film it, it's you know it's a wonderful film but he's a different sort of Nero I think uh, in uh, Peter Usinoff's, um version of Nero to the one that um, to the one that, that is in the novel uh, which draws actually very closely on a um, predecessor uh, called 
Darkness and Dawn, or Scenes from the Days of Nero, which was written in 1891 um, by uh, Frederick William Farrer, who was um, very high up in the Anglican Church. So just, you know, Maria's uh, point about the, the Christian reception is a, a really, really good one. Um, but one thing I wanted to uh, bring up was, uh, again, with uh, Matthew's material evidence, there's a wonderful graffito in Pompeii, uh, from uh, the Neronian period when we're talking about uh, whether Nero really was a matricide or really did do all of these things. Um, there's clearly people during his own time thought he did do these things because there's a graffito that um, says Mr Poison uh, is Nero's financial secretary. So when he's running out, where did he get his money from? Uh, when he's running out of money, he will use poison to kill particular senatorial, we think, families uh, or, or that sort of thing to, to claim their money for the imperial treasury. And that the fact that that's, you know, memorialised in a graffito, I think, demonstrates that the rumours may be not spread through the empire, but certainly the fashionable Bay Naples. of Naples. Yes. Yeah, and, and they got there early, so we're not yes, dealing with generations yeah. after Nero, no, but people who precisely. were alive in his lifetime. Temporary, yeah. I'd like to explore the Christian thing a bit more. I mean, how cohesive, how recognisably Christian. Did he did he burn them because they were Christians or because they were a community creating that they could easily be picked on? Well, I suppose one way of thinking about it is that the church wants to present him um, in, in the early period as the first persecutor of the faith. But the impression you get was that they were just chosen as a community um, suspect for Romans themselves um, as a, an opportunity to find um, a way out of the problem of the um, you know who had burnt Rome and of course they're they're tortured they're torched because that is the punishment you give to arsonists so it all rather bizarrely and horribly you know fits together but I think the mistake is to think that there's this large community that they are uh, martyred for faith, that it happens in the Colosseum. I mean, none of that mm. is the case. I mean, the, the, the Colosseum wasn't built at the time, it was near his lake, so there's some attempt made sometimes to link the, the sites of the martyrdoms to kind of particular temples or gods who had been effaced in, in the fire and to make it all a very kind of programmatic set what of you, what, do, what, do, what do you three of you think about the fire, finally? Do you think he did it? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he set fire to Rome. Um, His own palace, the Domus Transitoria, burned yes, down uh, exactly. in that fire. And yeah. it, the immediate stuff he did in the aftermath was really positive, and it's a bit a bit later on that the rumours of him starting it seem to, to ossify and become taken as fact. Um, and there are lots of fires frequently yeah, in Rome. The, what's different about this one is that it's more destructive, mm-hmm. lasts longer, and that that's... That's the problem. It's the middle of the summer. It's uh, three nights after the full moon, so it's a bad night for arson anyway. If you'd be creeping about in the streets, there'd be plenty of people would see you. But there's also a strand of Christian literature that takes ownership for the Christians setting the fire that says, yes, the, the small community of Christians in Rome did do it because this was an apocalyptic time, because this was when, the period when St Paul said the apocalypse would come about. So this is an apocalyptic event. This is what they were starting to, trying to start by setting the fire. That's a small strand of literature, I'll be clear, but there is one there. Our producer is aching at the, in the slips. Not really. Simon. Tea or coffee? <laughs> oh, a cup of tea would be tea. lovely. Coffee, coffee would be lovely. Thank you. Tea, coffee. Coffee, please. Thank Just you. Love it. Uh, in Our Time with Melvin Bragg is produced by Simon Tillotson. 
Beyond Today is the daily podcast from Radio 4. It asks one big question about one big story in the news and beyond. Just how big is Netflix? Why are young people getting lost in the system? I'm Tina Dehealy. I'm Matthew Price. And along with a team of curious producers, we are searching for answers that change the way we see the world. I was actually quite shocked by how many people this issue affects. So we're doing stories about technology, about identity. Are you trying to look black? No. I am not trying to look black. Power, where power lies, how it's changing. And every weekday we speak to the smartest people in the BBC and beyond. It's basically what I've been wanting to do since I was little. Let's talk about business and economics. And the stories started forming in my head. That's what I've learned. It's okay to feel. Subscribe to us on BBC Sounds. And join in on the hashtag Beyond Beyond Today. Today.